0: So today to go beyond our limits is going to be Cindy Warren. She is a lawyer and a yoga practitioner. It sounds like those two are really oxymoronic, You know, it's just like, how do you put those two very divergent worlds together? But doesn't that speak to all of us listeners? Because we have to put these these high demand days and intermix them with finding our inner peace. So Cindy Warren is going to help us do this. And she's the author of Radiate, R A D I Eight. Cindy, welcome so much to our program. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I want you, I'm going to, we've never talked, and so you don't really know my style is to ask questions and kind of explore ideas with you. And I like to throw authors off, and I don't want this to be the same old, same old uh, interview you could have with everybody else. And I don't know if that's really fair to you, but what I want to do is I want to start with samadhi or samadhi or however yes. it is that we say that in the world of yoga. And I want to start yes, with that samadhi. because often we leave the most delicious one, at least in my mind, the most delicious component toward the end of the show. But instead, I want to talk about it at the beginning and then talk in reverse how we build up to this type of amazing understanding of ourselves. But from your point of view, how do we dive into samadhi or samadhi and and really make it part of our being?
1: Wow, that's a, that's a great question to lead off with. Um, and, <laughs> I, and I like your style, Dr. Francis. <laughs> so the word in Sanskrit is pronounced samadhi, and it translates as enlightenment. So it certainly sounds kind of esoteric and lofty and unattainable. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it is, however, one of the eight, parts of the yoga philosophy path that I lay out in Radiate. And it really is about, I mean, there's so many ways to define enlightenment. I like to think of it as something that we can catch glimpses of throughout our journeys. And it might just be a moment where you feel at one with everything around you or you feel at peace with yourself and like you want for nothing and have all that you need and are all that you need. So I, I sort of approach samadhi as um, something that we can work to catch glimpses of throughout our lives. Some yoga scholars, philosophers, etc., would argue it's, it's not something you can really even attain in this lifetime. But I, I like to look at all aspects of the yoga philosophy practice as something more accessible that we can at least get little glimpses
0: of. And I include samadhi in that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's interesting to say that it's not attainable where I feel like I've visited many times to see, am I just being egocentric or narcissistic or grandiose thinking that that's something that I actually think that on a daily basis, I strive to create that experience And why would they say it's not accessible? I'm so puzzled.
1: Yes, I don't think that's egocentric or narcissistic um, or delusional of you in any way. I, (laughs) I think it's the same way you appear to see it. And I think that for some purist scholars, they look at it as once you reach samadhi, we're going to get a little bit esoteric here, the self dissolves. So there is no self anymore once you hit samadhi. Um, and that's not really how I look at it. I think it is something that we can maybe not 24-7. I mean, some of some among us may attain it 24-7. But like you said, each day strive to find glimpses of it, whether it's through meditation or prayer or some other contemplative practice. I think it's there for the taking.
0: That's good to know. And at, what do you think about the following? I was listening to Gloria Steinman. Uh, an incredible activist and a lawyer as well, interviewed by Oprah and was asked, where do you feel like you experience your spiritual self? She said, Gloria Steinman responded, I experience it when I am doing my advocacy for individuals and with individuals. and in, in that sort of experience, I feel like I'm at one. I have this universal sense that I am at one. That's my spiritual place. I thought about that, that one of my spiritual places is definitely when I'm in work with my patients and clients, and I feel like we are on the path that's very synchronized or simpatico with what their goals are, and that we are finding very workable strategies to move them and shift them. I feel like I'm somehow connected to a higher influence and to the people in front of me as well as to myself simultaneously, and it's a, a wonderful flow, so Those are my, you know, among my experiences, uh, a samadhi, samadhi. Wow, I'm having a hard time with that one. And (laughs) I would love to know some of yours. You mentioned them in the book, but what are they since you've written the book?
1: I find that when I'm teaching, so I I was a (laughs) practitioner, I still am a practitioner of yoga for many years before I became a teacher. And I... Hadn't really thought about it until you shared the Gloria Steinem quote and your experience, but I think I do experience samadhi sometimes in a yoga class when I feel like the beauty of the practice is, is coming through me and felt energetically by all the students in the room. So we're all having a similar experience that isn't about me or any student in particular. It's coming from the beauty of the tradition you can think of it as you know a divine influence a teacher of mine once said as teachers our job is to vesselify the teachings it's not about us they just come through us so that is one area where i think since i've written the book i've thought of samadhi you just raised that for me and um before thinking about it in that kind of collective way I have typically thought of samadhi as something I've experienced either sitting in meditation with my eyes closed and my breath deep and my mind still and my heart open and I feel this sense of oneness. Um, and there are also times where I'm in nature where I feel like I'm in touch with that connection. And I think, I think the, the nature piece is something that probably a lot of people feel they've experienced.
0: Have you ever thought that our entire body is made up of 70 trillion cells and that each of those cells have our name etched in them? And according to Greg Braden, would have the name of God etched in them as well. And to what degree, when you're in the midst of doing your yogic exercises or your yogic practice and body movement, do you feel as if every cell in your body wakes up to the same sort of universal experience of aha
1: there are times when I have felt that. It is not every time I unroll my mat and move my body. <laughs> um, <laughs> but there is this sense, and you used the word flow a few moments ago, where you feel like you're in this flow state and every part of you is alive and it's connected with every part of every other being on the planet that's alive. That's something that's it, – it doesn't happen all the time. But when it does, it's like,
0: wow, mind, body, and spirit blown. That's nice. Okay, so now if you were gonna start this interview out where you wanted to go and you had this kind of musing inside of you saying, This is what I want to talk about today, where would you start us?
1: I think depending on sort of the knowledge base of the listeners with respect to yoga, I would I would wanna start by just explaining what yoga is and what yoga isn't. So it's not just unrolling your mat. It's not just meditation, although it is both of those things, but it's so much more. So I would, I would want to start the conversation with that, and then there's one particular part of the practice that I think is not that well-known that I would also love to spend a few minutes talking about.
0: Take it away, then. Let's, let's, let's go your okay. flow for this moment.
1: Okay, fabulous. So, yoga, I I was initially brought to the practice just because of what I heard about what it does physically. And I love a challenging workout. And of course, there are many types of physical practice. It can be athletic, it can be calming, it can be restorative, it can be rejuvenating, it can be many different things depending on the type of practice. But what I didn't realize when I began this journey about a decade and a half ago was that yoga is really a life philosophy, that whether or not you ever unroll a sticky mat, um, you can engage in and it will help your life and your spiritual journey be better, accelerate, etc. So that's, that was sort of, that thinking was my impetus to write the book, because as a practitioner and a teacher of the practice, I found that so many students just did not know anything about the spiritual underpinnings of the practice that make it such a beautiful way of life in my opinion yes so that really yeah that really spoke to me and I think it, it's a little bit surprising in this day and age that so many people who may even go to a yoga studio and you know sweat on their mats five days a week don't know yoga is more than that
0: hmm. well keep going with this and
1: yeah walk us through so the I, different yeah, Okay, excellent. So in the book, I lay out an eight-limb path. It's, it's not mine. As I was saying before, the role of the teacher is to vesselify or let the information come through. So back uh, many, many years ago, the yoga philosophy was codified in a book called the Yoga Sutras. And it laid out an eight-part path that is the practice of yoga, and only one of the eight limbs is what we call asana or the physical practice of yoga so there are seven others that most modern practitioners don't know anything about um, and I can walk you through each of them and then spend spend a little bit of time telling you about one in particular that I find really interesting and helpful can you just so, kind of um, give us a
0: forecast of what that one is I'm gonna take a guess yes it's, it's, dharma. it's called
1: no, no actually Dharma
0: Oh, I would love to chat with you about Dharma.
1: Dharma is not <laughs> one of the eight limbs, though. Oh, so it's a very important part of the practice, but it's separate from the eight limbs. Okay. But let's, but let's definitely come back to Dharma. That's a okay. fabulous topic. Okay, so the limb that I wanted to talk about and explore a little bit is actually called Pratyahara, and oh. it means the translation is sensory withdrawal which sounds like, okay, that's weird. What, what the heck does that mean? <laughs> um, it basically means withdrawing from the stimulus of the external world and going inside. Mm. And so it sounds simple, and it's very hard to incorporate in our busy, modern, technology-infused lives. Um, it is related to meditation but it can also be different than meditation and just the idea of finding some space some stillness some quiet in our lives is how we really you know as we sort of started out the conversation is how we can tap into
0: that deeper part of ourselves that samadhi Hmm. that connection do you think this is a very interesting one to me i always have lots of reactions from people i you know i teach mindfulness and meditation because it's now Considered psychologically a, a, a data based, evidence based uh, treatment, which I laugh at since it's been around for thousands of years. But anyway, you know, I just, I'm kind of appalled that there's this whole money industry in my field around mindfulness when really. You know, yes, yes, okay. (laughs) And really, I totally understand that. (laughs) It just really appalls me. And I want to say to the Christians to say, well, now we have mindfulness. I said, you know, this is Hindu practice, don't you?
1: And I just want to,
0: (laughs) you know, and and I I come from a very strong Christian background. So I have many friends that are still very uh, connected to, they don't want to do anything outside of Christianity. And therefore, yoga at one time was felt to be a violation of that. We of course had Yogananda to come here and to try to Christianize with Christ consciousness so a little bit of our a receptivity of yoga, but that's a whole different uh, lineage that I actually uh, have in another program with historian in that regard. So I want right. to get back to this pratyahara because it or pratyahara. Am I saying that prata?
1: Yeah, prata- you're Ar- saying it right. Pratyahara.
0: Pratyahara. Because I find that individuals come into my office and they say, you know, I just can't meditate. I just can't meditate. There's no way I can still my mind and so forth and so on. And in my studies of cross-cultural meditation, there are like well over 200 different types of meditation. And this stillness and withdrawal from distractions and moving into this kind of state of emptiness has several variations in and of itself, but it is not the only one out there. So, help me kind of dance your experience of this in light of what I've just shared.
1: I I what a great question. That's amazing. Part Thank you. of it and people who people don't who who think I also hear so many people say I can't meditate. I understand the science now says it's great for you and I can't do it because <laughs> my mind races. I can't stop thinking. That's probably what you hear most typically also.
0: Yeah the monkey brain. The beauty.
1: Yeah. yeah, monkey brain exactly. The beauty of what the practice actually offers is you don't have to that doesn't like you said there are two, you know, however many hundreds of types of meditation there are, you don't have to stop the mind and just all of a sudden be a blank slate with no movement in the mind. So much of what you can do when you slow down is be the observer. Just come into the seat of the witness. And you'll notice there's my monkey mind, there's my judging mind, there's my ruminating mind, there's my, you know, to-do list mind. And you see all the ways in which your mind seems to run away with no volition on your part. And by simply slowing down and being the observer of what's happening internally, you automatically create this space where you're less enslaved to it and you don't have to react quite in, in quite such a knee-jerk fashion, you can actually slow down and be a little more reflective, a little more responsive, as opposed to reactive. So that's something that no matter how fast your monkey mind is, every person has the ability to slow down and observe.
0: It's interesting. Is
1: it really slowing down? I think... It doesn't have to be slowing down, but I've noticed in my own personal practice, if I'm constantly go, 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 it can be hard for me to separate from the, you know, rushing current of thoughts in my head. So for me, I find it does help to slow the body, slow the breath, and then I can tap into what's going on and become a little more reflective um, but I don't, you know, I, I think you raise a good point. Is it necessary? Probably not for some people. What What have you found?
0: Oh, I, I so appreciate just having a dialogue about that. It's very interesting. Well, I, I'm going to take a current experience. I currently have like four huge projects on my platter. I could sit there and look at all the fine tuning of all the details associated to that, all the time consuming. I could create such angst such muscular tension such worry about all of these projects and then to feel like I'm in charge of these projects and 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 be overwhelmed I can move right there in my human moment and I and I can appreciate this is overwhelming like to the 10th degree for me or yes I can look at all of those things and go This is so exciting. Look at all these things. These are creative manifestations. These are each opportunities to have these creative exchanges with individuals. And and I can put the smile in my soul and in my heart and on my face and in my stomach. And I can allow my brain, because I go through the three brains of the body, I can allow the synergistic experience with the brain in my head, the brain in my heart, and the brain in my stomach to dance in the busyness of it. And the busyness is not that I'm busy or hassled because I couldn't go there very in a matter of seconds, but in that I have these incredible opportunities to express creativity. Well, Cindy, how do I fit that into my understanding of the eight aspects that you're talking about here, and particularly this pratyahara?
1: Wow. That's incredible because I I can relate to that so much as a busy lawyer and a yoga teacher. It's easy to look at, you know, and probably everyone listening to this show can relate to that. You can look at something and be overwhelmed or look at it as a gift and an opportunity and find some gratitude. And so much of it is this idea that what you think shapes your world. And you can call that cognitive psychology. You can probably call it a lot of things, but that's also yoga. So we have so much power and ability to shape our lives simply by observing and then narrating our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I, and you've obviously done that successfully, Dr. Francis, to be able to look at something that could make you so overwhelmed, see the potential to go there yourself and then say, no, I'm tapping into my three brains, head, heart, stomach, gratitude, joy, joy, what a beautiful opportunity for creative expression and connection. And you did that by shaping your thoughts, starts at the level of the thoughts. That's such an important part of all aspects of the yoga practice. I think that goes into
0: each of the eight limbs. Oh, interesting. And so in other words, there are these, these components of who we are that can go into these eight limbs. And as we as we expand those aspects of who we are, we can also expand these eight limbs and the depth of how we manifest them?
1: I think so, absolutely. And hopefully, you know, we're not manifesting today the way we manifested five years ago, and I, I hope I'm manifesting a little differently five years from now. I think it's a, it's a process. And not to mm-hmm. say there aren't steps forward and back. You may have a day where you're in you know, head heart stomach joy gratitude and then next week you find yourself overwhelmed and succumbing to stress. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. you're not still on your journey and moving forward. It's it's not always a perfectly linear journey. But I would guess that having done the work that you apparently are doing and teaching others to do, you can quickly self-correct because you have that the skill of observation and then you know, ability to reach, reshape the narrative in your head.
0: So if we come back to your point about the Pratyahara. You're saying that that experience is the ability to come back to this observational, quiet relationship with oneself. Yes. Yes. Now expand that in your own life. Mm -hmm. Expand that in your own life.
1: yeah, that can be, um, I mean, that can definitely be part of meditation, but I actually would love to talk about Pratyahara as separate from meditation. Okay. So one, one you know, sort of humorous anecdote I share in the book was that a few years ago I was working with, um, for just a few months period of time, a life coach who uh, diagnosed me as being addicted to busyness. And, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Aren't we all sometimes addicted to busyness? If I had a busy day, I felt very good and productive, albeit stressed. If, I, if work was a little slow and I could take things a little slower, sometimes I would move into almost a little bit of a depressive <coughs> affect where I felt like, oh, my gosh, I didn't accomplish anything today what, and take myself into existential crisis mode of well, what am I doing here on earth anyway, which gets into Dharma, which we'll come back to. Um and she so this coach said busyness doesn't equal productivity or value as a member of society or a human being. So here here's my assignment for you. I want you to sit down for ten minutes a day. And then she stopped the sentence. And I was <laughs> like, And she's like, That's all so my heart started racing, my palms started sweating, and then I caught a glimmer of hope, and I said, do you mean meditate? Because that I I can set my timer to, and I have a number of meditation techniques that are my go-tos. And she said, no, for you, meditation is something where you get to check the box. I accomplished that today. She said, you're just going to sit there and do nothing. And I did for several weeks before I – had sort of reframed my thinking. And sometimes I'll still go back to it. But it was, it was so interesting because it really was a practice of Pratyahara. Withdraw from the external world, just sit there and be. Do less, be more. Hmm. And the first few days I did it, I almost felt like embarrassed. Like if someone could see me right now, like they would be like, oh, my God, she's not doing anything. What's wrong with her? What's she doing? And I noticed that it actually gave me a little recharge. I would come back to my whatever was happening that day, work, yoga, being a mom, a wife, whatever, with like a renewed focus, a renewed energy. And that was just a practice of
0: stillness, withdrawing, going in. Hmm. Oh, that's a found it quite transformative. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in my very productive way of having to ask this question, which is, like opposite of what you're saying, do you feel like that experience began to flow into heightening some of the other eight, or, uh, the other seven, the other seven Absolutely. limbs? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I think awesome. so, so you know, the first two of the limbs are really kind of ethical guidelines. <clears throat> um, and, and you sort of raised the question before of the, you, you kind of impliedly ask, does this conflict with religion? I don't believe it does. I think you'd find a lot of commonality if you look at any of the major religions and the philosophical precepts of yoga, the ethical precepts of yoga. Um, but I, I view it more as just a humanistic approach to life as opposed to I don't believe it's a religion. So, but the ethical one, precepts, they do all require some self-awareness. For example, the first of the ethical requirements um, that we call the yamas, which is the first of the eight limbs, is the Sanskrit word ahimsa, which means nonviolence. It doesn't just mean don't go around punching people. It means, you know, how do you talk to people? And then taking it a step further, how do you talk to yourself? Do you treat yourself with kindness and compassion, or are you in judgment mode, criticism, negativity with respect to yourself so by tying it back to pratyahara to me so much of this goes back to being the witness or the observer to your interior landscape when you can slow down sit down stop moving stop doing you observe what's happening more and then you calibrate and make skillful choice And to me, the entire eight-limb path of yoga is about moving through the
0: world with more skill and grace. So I think Project helps us do that. Yeah, so skillful choice, that is a beautiful thing. You're talking a lot about this conscious capacity to deliberately impact ourselves and others and skillful choices. Oh, do talk more about that.
1: So many of us, myself included, I think are raised to almost go on autopilot to make life choices by either inertia or external expectations or, you know, you become an accountant because mom and dad were accountants without actually using your intellectual discernment to assess whether that's the right path for you. That's perhaps a silly example. But we're mo- so many of us are moving through life on autopilot. And yoga, I think, teaches us to, as you said, like tap into a conscious capacity. And I really do think of it as every choice you make in life is you're, you're doing something at the expense of something else. My husband actually calls this resource allocation, like time is a limited resource. So how are we allocating our time? Have we put enough towards the marriage this week, for example, or are you overdoing it by practicing yoga ten times a week, so <laughs> <I> feel, <laughs> sometimes the answer is yes, and then we course correct. Um, but looking at all the choices that we make in our days, less from a victim mentality of this is happening to me or that is happening to me, or so and so did this or that to me, it's sort of reclaiming personal autonomy and um, yeah, moving with more skill and and then the the grace component i think is coming into this idea that we are all connected we're all walking this planet at the same time and trying to trying to find meaning and happiness and peace and love for ourselves and those around us
0: i love this idea of the ahimsa so i mean how do you think that fits into this one, oneness of the uh, samadhi this Mahdi, the How does that fit if if we go from that nonviolence and then we go into this this creative capacity to make conscious choices and course correct? How does that lead into that uh, samadhi, which we started our discussion about?
1: If we truly can feel into the fact that we're connected to the world around us and the inhabitants of the world around us, why would we want to hurt anyone around us? or ourselves, we're all part of this collective consciousness. And so if, if you can tap into the idea of connection first, the yama or ethical restraint of ahimsa nonviolence sort of seamlessly
0: flows from that. Beautifully said. Well, where else now do you take us in this journey? What's, what's your next shift as we, as we follow you? After publishing Radiate, you mean? No, I mean, as in your discussion Radiate. of the eight limbs? Yeah, because you've talked yes, about. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. No, sorry, I didn't mean to derail you there. Go ahead.
1: Oh no, that's okay. I definitely would want to do want to encourage people to engage with the physical practice of yoga. Although I firmly believe that's not necessary to be a quote yogi or a spiritual being of any kind. Um, but I think it's an amazing way to heal the body, mind, and spirit. So that is a part of something I advocate for. And then I I think it's also really wonderful to come back to two things that, that you've brought up. One is mindfulness as one component of meditation, and the other is Dharma, which means sacred purpose. Like what's your sacred purpose in life? For you, it's doing the work you're doing. For me, it's, doing the work I'm doing, having the conversation that we're engaged in right now. Um, so I think all those things, when, when we can get people focused on these ideas of, like, understanding what their goal is in their life, their sacred purpose, um, things will flow from that. And there will be, I, I think, more grace and creativity and compassion.
0: Okay, so now let's let's go through some of these uh, eight limbs because I'm feeling a little a little chagrin that I've 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 I'm, I move you onto that path and then I move you off and I move you on and I just want to kind of finish <laughs> the definition of them because these are really valuable concepts. Now I am going to really do a bad job at saying them correctly. Ni niyama. <laughs> yes, <laughs> oh, niyama. Oh uh-huh. boy. Okay, niyama. Okay. State of respectful connection with yourself is what I have down here. Yeah. Tell me more.
1: Okay. So the limbs start with, we covered in, in very cursory form, yama, which is the first of the eight limbs. That's really ethical rules of living in the world such as nonviolence. Niyama is the second of the eight limbs, and that's really the rules that pertain to you, how you relate to yourself. So one of the, I'll give you an example of one of the niyamas, and I won't ask you to pronounce it in Sanskrit. It's spadyaya, <laughs> which, yeah, means no, you self, which means self-study. So, you know, again, this sort of goes back to my whole uh, impetus to write the book, if you will. People don't know there's so much more to the yoga practice than the physical practice, but self-study, introspection. Going inward, really knowing yourself. That's a big part of the practice. So that's a niyama that I often actually talk about in the physical practice. It can be as simple as, okay, now I'm putting you through a series of poses. Notice how you study yourself as you move through the practice, not just the physical sensations in your body, of which there will be many, but the ups and downs of your mind and your reactivity, what if I call out a pose you really don't care for because your thighs are just burning at the end of it. How do you react? Just observe, study. It's from that place this sort of ties us back to what we were speaking about a few moments ago, from that place of observation. Now make skillful choice. Do you want to come out of the pose? That's an option. Do you want to stay in the pose but deepen your breath? That's an option. Or do you want to stay just as you are and continue to struggle? That's also an option, not the most skillful, but it's a choice you could make. So so that's an example of a niyama and how I like mm-hmm. to apply it to the larger practice.
0: And in the discussion of this, do they have kind of like the way of looking at something from unskilled to skilled? I mean, is there this yes. continuum? Mm-hmm. Tell us some about Absolutely. that.
1: Absolutely. Well, I think so much of that is embodied in the physical practice. You can see students who are... Uh, caught up so much in wanting to assume the, quote, perfect physical shape of the pose, that they're moving their body very unskillfully, lacking awareness of what goes where and what where the sensation should be. And um, through the repetition of the practice and with the help of a knowledgeable, skillful teacher, hopefully the way they start to move their body on the mat changes from unskillful to skillful. Now, if that's the only impact of the yoga practice on someone, I would argue that more work needs to be done. So I, I love to see a student moving from less skill to more skill physically, but then if they pull out of the parking lot of their yoga studio and flip off a driver who cuts them off, I'm going to be a little concerned that they haven't really integrated the actual yoga. So you want to take it off the mat. So um, we move from skill, unskilled to skilled on the mat. We move from less skilled to more skilled on the road or in the home or at the office in life.
0: Hmm. That's beautiful. In other words, the ease in which you can apply it to any given circumstance you happen to find yourself into. Exactly. That's precisely mm-hmm. the point. You know, I want to just take a little caveat here, because one of the things I appreciated that was in your uh, second to last chapter in your book was that you talked about your experience with the the Judaistic Judaistic, uh, Jewish traditions. How do we want to say this here? And um, one of the aspects that you said, and I can't find the exact quote right at this moment, is that the paths of all of us are so unique because we're so uniquely equipped we have so unique combination of characteristics and we have so unique uh manifestations of different characteristics when you're talking about this and this is a tie-in to what you're saying when you're talking about this range of skill sets or range of capacity to skillfully shift or skillfully apply something i i I worry that people will hear this like oh how do i conform to being the best that the best of this this model. Uh, how can I be like that person? How can I be like the best of that model as opposed to how can I be the best of myself? So yeah. that when you're talking about the different types of poses, I was thinking you know, my body type is really different than a lot of yoga teachers. I'm very tall and, I, and I'm not this petite little thing, but I love doing yoga. But I have to accommodate this very different type of body based on how it moves, how it feels, what its musculature is, and also my skill. Clearly my skill. Um, But I know that the intimidation factor is is I can't look like that teacher. I can only be my best and moving skill as I shift on my own path. Can you address the individuality of this for a moment? A
1: hundred percent, and I'm so happy you raised that. So Boy, in my next life, I'd love to come back as you. I'm 5'1". <laughs> I always wanted to be the tall yogi in the room. That's never me. But, yes, it's so much, so much of this goes to the idea that who you surround yourself with and the community in which you choose to immerse yourself, yogic or otherwise, is really important to how you progress or don't progress. So I would encourage everybody listening who has any interest in, you know, the physical practice of yoga, there are so many studios out there and some you will walk into and it will feel like home. That's where you go. Some you will walk into and you will feel competition, jealousy, judgment. That's not the right place for you. So just like the gamut of human emotions can be found in any industry, it can be found in any yoga studio as well. And I think it's really important to understand you're not there to be me or to be Dr. Francis or to be anyone else. You're there to just find the best you and to move away from comparison, which is an external focus, to self-love, which is an internal focus. Mm -hmm. So I think finding the right teacher and the right practitioners is so critical to
0: find fulfillment on this journey.
1: Mm
0: That's fascinating okay so you you did the Niyama and we did the Pratahara, yes. and we're not doing justice yep. to any of them actually and I do <laughs> want each of you to go read Cindy Warren's book radiate it's a it's a wonderful easy easy read you can read up a chapter and it just kind of inspires you it shifts you into this different kind of ha huh, kind of deep gentle breath with this, this it's kind of like iced tea on a hot day kind of idea and at the same time it's so powerfully moves into your soul. So it's like that, that gentle, of oh, the iced tea on a hot day, but your whole body is just cheering that it's hydrated, you know? So it's the same way with your book, Cindy. I really appreciate that. So Radiate Everybody by Cindy Warren. So Cindy, do we go on to the dharana? dharana? No, we, we've,
1: we've jumped around a little bit. So we did yama and we did niyama. <laughs> okay. The okay. third of the limbs is called pranayama,
0: which ah. is
1: breath control is the definition. So it's really manipulating your breath. So much of the breath work that we do in yoga and meditation and also in completely unrelated disciplines relates to the regulation of the nervous system. So if you notice that you're ever, you know, if one word of notice they were feeling anxious and then check in what's happening with the breath, it's probably very shallow. We have... The breath is so interesting because obviously it happens on its own or else we wouldn't be having this conversation. But it is also subject to some volitional control. If you lengthen your exhales, for example, you tap your body into the parasympathetic nervous system, which is otherwise known as rest and digest. It's the opposite mode of fight or flight where we are when... We're under chronic stress or in extreme, extremely stressful situations. So by learning to control the breath and manipulate it in ways that are healthy for our body and our mind, we can also work to become more skillful, aware, and walk through our days with a little more compassion and kindness for ourselves, which then radiates out into our surroundings. So pranayama is a, is a really important limb that can be done on its own. It can be done in conjunction with the physical practice of yoga. Um, and there are some wonderfully easy techniques that, that everybody could use to sort of self-soothe.
0: You want to give us some of those? Yes, yeah,
1: so let me give you the easiest. And so for some of us, this if you're not used to um, even noticing your breath, I would say, Close your eyes, take a comfortable seat, sit up with a long spine, five rounds of breath. Notice the inhale, notice the exhale. Try and deepen on each round. Maybe you even find a little retention where you hold the breath just momentarily at the top of the in-breath, and you do the same thing, retain the breath, a little bit of a hold at the bottom of the out-breath. So that's just a really simple if breath work is completely new to you, five deep breaths. Notice, see how it shifts from breath one to five and count them out in your head. Hmm. If you're a little more conversant with some pranayama work, again, this is very simple. This is actually a technique I um, read about from Dr. Andrew Weil. It's the four-three-seven technique. Yes. So you inhale to, yeah, you know this one, inhale to a count of four, hold the breath to a count of three, and exhale to a count of seven. What this naturally does is lengthen your exhale, which is going to calm the body right down. You're tapping into the parasympathetic nervous system. Your body will automatically release some feel-good hormones like serotonin and oxytocin, so that's a great one. And the way I count it out, it can be tempting to count it too fast, for the 437, it should be a pretty slow, steady pace. Think metronome. So inhale two, three, four, three, four, hold two, three, exhale two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you could do that for three rounds. That would be really
0: shift the feeling of the whole mind and body. Mm-hmm. Oh, these are beautiful. I know that I once had an ear, nose, and throat doctor say if people would do the following exercise for twenty times every day they'd never be able to, they'd never have to come see me because they'd never have any ear nose or throat complications. It was wow. It was a really it was an interesting process. And it's it's very similar to these sorts of things that if you were to consider the playfulness with your breathing but do it in a skillful, purposeful way and then find the various configurations taking what Dr. Wheel says or what you're saying and find a configuration that either matches you from someone else's suggestions or your own you're really shifting into a consciousness that seems to be related somewhat to Pradahara. because you're yes. now yeah. observing yourself okay talk a little bit about that
1: absolutely i love that you just made a suggestion of it doesn't have to be there's not a magic number that Dr. Dr. Weil came up with or I came up with or anyone else, you may find a different configuration where you prefer to hold the breath at the top of the inhale for longer, exhale for longer, whatever configuration works for you. And that process of playing around and experimenting with something as basic and, and, and simple as breath work really is a practice of discernment where you're going in You're listening to your body, you're seeing what feels good, and then you're making skillful choice as a direct result. So that's using your intellect to discern. It's using your powers of observation, like we talked about with the niyama of svadhyaya, self-study. And it really is, can be symbolic of just the way you approach anything that comes up in your life, not just your breath. So I think all of that ties so beautifully to Pratyahara, which is the limb we've been spending the most time talking about, that sensory withdrawal, that I think is the least understood and probably least utilized of all the limbs.
0: Hmm. All
1: roads are sort of leading back there. It's very interesting.
0: Yeah, today it is, right? <laughs> yeah. What's, what's the next limb you want to introduce us to?
1: The next limb, well, I'll quickly touch upon asana, which is just the physical practice. So that's the fourth. So it's so interesting to me that of the eight limbs, most modern yoga practitioners, especially in America, know only asana, physical posture. And that's not number one, two, or three. It's number four. So we've got asana, which could be anything from taking a downward-facing dog for five breaths to doing a very vigorous flowing practice for 90 minutes. Um, And I did touch a little bit earlier in the conversation with asana on just finding the right community within which to practice the physical part of yoga. Mm-hmm. So that's asana. Yes. And then next we come to Pratyahara. And then the, the next limb, which is number six, is called dharana. And it means concentration. Mm-hmm. So when we talked earlier about people having monkey minds, engaging in some kind of dharana practice, is a nice antidote where you concentrate. We're a world of multitaskers and there are more and more studies coming out showing how ineffective multitasking is. Um, And so it's, the yogis back in the day knew the simplicity. You concentrate on one thing and you build your mental capacity and that's the beginning stage of meditation according to the eight limb Mm -hmm. philosophy.
0: You know, it's so interesting that um, I work with learning skills of teenagers as well or, or elementary school, and one of the practices that's no longer etched into students' mind is the practice of memorization, and memorization develops this whole part of the brain that, and this whole kind of interconnectedness of the brain that doesn't really uh, get satisfied by the current system that relies on devices to be our memories well, I'm just tremendously thrilled with my devices because they've helped me expand my business easily. There's no question. Life is a lot easier with them because I'm in the generation before computers and now we have all these wonderful ad ad hoc helps that are just amazing. But at the same time, I realize that these younger generations don't know what it's like to go inside and really school their brain to remember, record, to hold on to to make permanent inside one's uh, storage banks. Um, And I'm wondering to what degree that isn't associated to this particular branch, this particular limb.
1: That is so interesting, Dr. Francis. I've not heard that, what you just relate about memorization not being so essential in the education of our youth, and I too, you know, similarly, same age, I was raised before computers, and memorization was such a huge part of the educational process for me, and I do think, um, you know, before you raise this, I never even thought of this as being related to Darna, but I think it fits into that entire limb beautifully. When you concentrate on something, I mean, if you're constantly getting your answers from Google, how much concentration is actually going on? And are you depriving your brain of some exercise there? So I love Mm -hmm. that tie-in to memorization. I think that absolutely makes sense. And memorization involves a one-pointed focus of mind, which is dharana defined. So you're Mm -hmm. reading one thing or
0: one term or um, one scientific rule, and you're memorizing it. Mm -hmm. And then the power, the skill set to be able to do that increases as you practice it. So putting right. that into the learning skill world. And where do we go from here?
1: So, yeah, good. I mean, that's that's amazing. So dharana is really sort of considered the sort of the gateway to meditation. The next limb is called dhyana, and that really encompasses the whole of meditation. So as you mentioned and I've said, too, there are so many different techniques I Talk about a number of really easy, accessible techniques in radiate as well. Um, meditating with a mantra, which is just the simple repetition of a phrase or a word or even just a sound in your mind as you breathe in and out. Um, it's just a way to different techniques, and what they what their point is is to draw you in. So whether it draws you into stillness. That can happen. Whether it draws you into monkey mind, but at least you see it, so you're not completely caught up in it, that can happen as well. Maybe it draws you into this deep feeling of connection with everything around you. That's samadhi, So, which is where we began the discussion. So all these sort of things that we talked about come into the limb of Diana. There's a lot of interrelationship between the different
0: limbs. Yeah, I just had this in, this image of the the tree of life from the the Kabbalah tradition and how they all kind of come into one trunk. And it sounds like that in essence is uh, another way of looking at this metaphorically. And The other thing Absolutely. that comes to mind is that uh, once upon a time when we had to memorize poems or we had to memorize verses or we had to memorize, moving back into that memorization, that also trained us to think about the content of that poem, or that prose, or that that verse, or that, you know, I had to memorize the Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream in high school, and over and over I had to give that speech uh, in speech contests. I think that that was such a wonderful experience, because on a daily basis, I was rehearsing the entirety of his speech. And, wow. uh, you know, the and actors have to ha- memorize the entirety of Shakespeare, or the entirety of whatever. And I'm wondering to what degree in the world where we talk about intentionality and manifestation and uh, the, the, the ability to create, uh, to be able to skillfully, consciously shift something because we know how to engage that. If there isn't this discipline of the mind being able to rehearse over and over again like cognitive behavioral therapy or self-affirmations where we over and over rehearse something until it kind of creeps into it and and to what degree is that somewhat a blend of these different uh, eight, of the eight limb yogas what's your reaction to this attempt to bring all this together I
1: love it. I love it. I think it's very insightful. It's so interesting. If you're repeating to yourself and then saying out loud, you know, for example, uh, Martin Luther King's speech day after day, it is becoming a part of you. It's finding an imprint on your brain, you know, whether it's head, heart, stomach, it's, it's finding its way in there. And then I think what we do as individuals is sort of digest it and make it our own. So the way you internalize that speech might be different than a friend who had the same practice of working to memorize it. And I feel like this is so related to the yoga practice. I think for just my own journey, for many years, I was an avid practitioner and student of not just the physical practice, but reading everything I could get my hands on, wanting to know more just out of this immense curiosity and passion for the practice that when I finally had the idea to write a book laying out the eight limbs in an accessible way, I had so much of the information in my head already just from years of of study that the book almost just poured out of me. Like I had already metabolized mm-hmm. so much of that information, which is what you did with the speech. And I think what, what people do with memorization, whether it's either just intense study or or um, legitimate memorization, which is a little different than what I did to prepare for writing the book. But, yeah, I think that this is all really important All all of this stuff that you're just talking about is so important if we want to be creative um, creatures who go out into the world and share our passions and our knowledge.
0: You as a lawyer went through a very intense three years of training, of thinking analytically, memorizing, being able to discuss case law, trying to understand and memorize many of the laws. Maybe you could even spout off the code numbers, uh, it's this quantity, huge quantity. And and now, of course, now that you have all this accessible on computers and resourcefully uh, accessible, do you feel like on some level the discipline of becoming a lawyer during those three years actually landed you in some of this profound capacity? I never
1: asked myself that question before, but I think it did. What do you come up with? That, wow, that's so incredible. Yeah, I mean, in law school and then studying for the bar exam. So I went to law school in California, took the California bar exam, which I'm, I'm not sure what the pass rate is now, but at the time I took it, Whoa. it was only 60%. <laughs> yes. But yes. I had a lot of friends and classmates who worked hard in law school, got good grades, took the bar, failed the bar, had to take it again. Um, I was fortunate enough to not to
0: have to go through that, um, probably but probably not. Then I, double,
1: yeah, it probably right, was a practice, exactly. a lot of
0: practice that you. Yeah, go ahead. Well,
1: it was, it was, and a lot of memorization. But that deep dive, you you can't really, in preparation of either the bar exam or, or law school stay on the surface you have to deep deep dive into the materials and I remember my first few months of law school and this is going back some decades but I remember feeling like I was learning another language like I I was dreaming in law not in English and um, I think there is something to that discipline of a deep dive whether it's in mathematics or science or engineering or whatever that does train the brain um to be open to doing more of that. And I think perhaps my hunger for um, learning as much as I could about yoga over the period of about 15 years is tied into um, what I did in law school. And I've always just loved being a student. So um, that it, I find it very satisfying to tackle something and do a deep dive into
0: it. Beautifully said. I think we're gonna shift into like a cursory understanding of Dharma. I can't believe this conversation is almost over. Oh, <laughs> I can't either. You know, you'll need oh, to come back. Dharma.
1: What I talk would about Dharma? Mm-hmm. In a nutshell, Dharma is a Sanskrit term that really means sacred duty. So it was first brought to light or most well-known, brought to light by the Bhagavad Gita, which is not a text I talk about too much in, in the book, though I, I do refer to it a little bit. But it's another one of the preeminent texts of yoga. And the Bhagavad Gita is an allegory of a man named Arjuna who is looking for, to fulfill his dharma, his sacred duty. So there are so many different layers and aspects to Dharma. But the way I like to think about it and share with my students is like, what fills you up the most? What makes your heart sing? Let that be what guides you. So I was actually just away on vacation last week with my family and my 15-year-old daughter and I were taking a walk on the beach. She had just read the book and liked something I talked in there about in the book that referenced, you know, what are you willing to die for? Mm -hmm. And people will often have a pretty quick answer. My family, my country, whatever. Okay, well, now turn that on its head. What are you doing to live for that thing? So if you say you would die for your family, but you spend all your time at the office and you don't really make time for your family, you're not in alignment. So I think of Dharma as, okay, what would you die for? now how are you living for that thing? And if we all pause to ask that question and then look at how we're spending our time and whether we're making skillful choices around the access of what's most important to us, we can just come into more alignment where how we're living our life really matches what's inside our hearts and souls.
0: I think that Dharma is also something you have to ask yourself in every sequence of your life. So, you know, maybe my dharma on Sunday is very different than my dharma on Monday, <laughs> even on that level.
1: Yeah. Or maybe my my dharma yes.
0: walking into my office is very different than my dharma, you know, greeting my family at the end of the, day at the beginning. Also, dharma Absolutely. is also very different for every phase of life. And I'm in my 60s. My dharma is completely in line with all of what I've done thus far, because it all kind of converges. But I'm watching yes. my dharma expand in a way that's. That is, uh, I'm just loving, but it is definitely a different process. So what do you think about that? That is,
1: yes, I agree completely. That's so lovely the way you said that. I don't think Dharma is a static thing.
0: I think it changes in
1: different phases of our lives and also in the different areas of our lives that we inhabit at any given time. So walking into the office different than walking into the house different Dharma okay. Dharma in your 60s not the same as Dharma in your twenties and so it's helpful to just continue to refine your goals and your passions and the things that make your your heart sing and um,
0: keep channeling keep channeling that as we move forward Wow Cindy the time has bed by and i know that everybody listening to this is going to go i want to dive deeper isn't that nice i want to dive deeper isn't that the, <laughs> the call of it all how do you want to it's end beautiful. this and before you end it uh tell us how we connect with you so several ways the book is
1: radiate by uh cindy with an s warren and it's on amazon and it's R-A-D-I and the number eight. I have a website that's yoga8book.com, yoga8book.com. And then Cindy Warren, I'm on Facebook and Instagram and would love to connect with anyone who wants to take the conversation um, further or ask me any clarifying questions. I love connecting with people. And I think, Dr. Francis, I would just want to end this interview by saying how grateful I am for the opportunity to speak to you and to your listeners and to share this beautiful practice that I hope I have done some measure of honor to in my writing and my speaking about it, because I, for me, it's been very transformative.
0: Well, Cindy, I think you have very much honored the whole practice. And one of the ways I interview is to kind of keep you off balance so I hear the authenticity. Does that make sense as opposed to the script? And you have stayed it totally does. <laughs> so true to yourself and so true to your communication and provided this to be clear and understandable for each of us, just as your book, Radiate, does. And a thank you for, you know, thank you so much for bringing this to our minds, our hearts and the ease of our learning. And I look forward to the next conversation with you.
1: I do as well, Dr. Francis. Thank you so much.
0: Folks, enjoy your day. Just move into your heart and your head and your stomach and all of the practices you have to do your chores. I say that as if I'm cursing it, but now let's make in chores. Wow, a dharma of sorts. And live life fully and completely. We all need to embrace life. So go forth, prosper. Oh, my gosh, Star Trek in its heart. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.